During her tenure as Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright had a phrase for the United States. I have said many times that the United States is the indispensable nation. And that is because nothing much happens if we are not a part of it internationally. The United States, she argued, was the world's most important decision maker and the unrivaled guarantor of the international order. Challenging the United States seemed reckless. And you could see proof of that in the Middle East. When she was secretary, virtually every country in the region had a positive relationship with the United States or at least was seeking a better one. But after 9-11, the United States became mired in conflict in Afghanistan and then Iraq. The Bush administration leaned into a forward strategy of freedom in the Middle East that made democratization of the region a top U.S. government priority. Ambitions were high. As the decade wore on, though, achievements often seemed modest. Two decades of intensive U.S. engagement with the Middle East left policymakers and the U.S. public exhausted. Americans increasingly ask, what's really at stake for the United States in the Middle East? And should the Middle East continue to be the principal focus of American foreign policy? Meanwhile, governments in the Middle East look at two decades of U.S. efforts to transform the region and a visible U.S. impatience to exit the region and they wonder what it all means for them. Should they tie themselves even more closely to a country that has seemed to flail in its efforts to stabilize the region and that seems to be looking for the exits, or should they risk their close American ties by seeking new partners who lack both the interest and the ability to play the role the United States had played for more than a half century? In absolute terms, the United States is still the most dominant outside power in the Middle East in most dimensions. But is it still, in Secretary Albright's construction, indispensable? And if it's not, what do regional governments think they should do? Welcome to the U.S. and the Middle East podcast miniseries. In this series, we talk to leading experts and former policymakers about the role of U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair on Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we'll explore how people and governments in the Middle East see the United States and what they want from the United States. After two decades of trying to force their will on the Middle East, U.S. policymakers see the Middle East of 2022 in a different light than their counterparts of two decades ago. And countries in the region are looking at the United States differently, too. The U.S. retrenchment in the Middle East is considered a given in policy circles in Washington, and the feeling is echoed in capitals across the region. Maha Yahya directs the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut. The power of the United States is waning in the region, namely because it's perceived as shifting its attention away. It's very clear that in the last decade, or at least over the last three administrations, we've seen that the United States priorities have moved away from more maximalist goals that included democracy, regional transformation, etc., to more towards three far more clearly defined priorities, which are the nuclear deal with Iran, a regional stabilization, 
and three, combating terrorism that threatens the homeland. Alon Pinkas was a senior diplomat working at the top levels of the Israeli government. The U.S. is disengaging from the Middle East. It sees no vital interests to protect, no vital interests to attain, no foreign policy goals to pursue in the Middle East. All it sees are troubles and pitfalls. Yemen, Syria, Israel, Palestinians. And Nabil Fahmi agrees. He was Cairo's ambassador to Washington for a decade and then served as Egypt's foreign minister. In relative terms, your hard assets remain far stronger than anybody else in the world, whether that is military or economic. Where there's been a difference is America's readiness to engage beyond its traditional domain. And particularly after 9-11, after the Afghanistan situation, after Iraq, that scene in the Middle East is having diminished. The United States falls into a bit of a trap. It's still the strongest outside player in the Middle East, but the perception that it's looking for the exits makes countries discount U.S. power and influence. And with every announcement that U.S. attention is focused on the Indo-Pacific and strategic competition with China, U.S. partners in the Middle East doubt that the United States will have the resources or the will to protect common interests in the Middle East. For U.S. partners who've come to rely on the United States, that's a disquieting thought. One place where people are growing unsettled is Israel. For more than a half century, U.S. support for Israel has been a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. U.S. policymakers saw Israel as a key strategic partner in a sea of adversaries, and the United States bolstered the partnership. It was Israel's advocate and protector in a whole series of diplomatic initiatives, and it granted Israel tens of billions of dollars in military assistance. But today, some Israelis, like former diplomat Alon Pinkas, don't think they can take that active role for granted anymore. I don't think for a second that there's any compelling reason for the U.S. to stay in the Middle East because of its relationship with Israel. You look at the Abraham Accords, yeah? Basically, what you see is the U.S. is saying, look, we mediated this great thing for you to normalize your relations with the Arab world, with parts of the Arab world. You already have an existing relationship with Egypt and Jordan, and we have absolutely no intention of getting into the Palestinian issue once again. Even the Trump administration had the common sense not to get themselves seriously involved. Once the Abraham Accords were signed, the U.S. basically said, get off our backs now. We have other things to deal with. Pinkas says that shift is going to pose a big challenge for Israeli leaders, even if they haven't fully realized it yet. This is the relationship that we have. It's asymmetrical. It is by far more important to Israel than it is to the U.S., despite what everyone would tell you, how invaluable Israel is to the U.S. The U.S. can live without Israel. Israel will have a lot of problems dealing with the region without the U.S. And that means that Israel needs to adapt to the United States' new calculus in the region. And so Israel is going to have to make tough choices. From an Israeli point of view, there's no alternative to the U.S. Israel can't adopt China slash Russia slash India slash Uruguay slash Belgium as its strategic benefactor. Israel is powerful enough to make these adjustments. It just needs to understand that this is no longer the Cold War that the U.S. is not going to go and fight another war in Iraq or Syria, that the U.S. is not going to be actively putting plans on the table for an Israeli-Palestinian 
peace plan, that the U.S. is focused on other places, and Israel needs to make an adjustment and make itself vital. Making yourself vital goes through the added value things that Israel brings to the table in its relationship with the U.S. Abdulhalik Abdullah sees things a little differently. He's an Emirati political scientist. For much of the last 20 years, the UAE has thrown its lot in with the United States. It supported U.S. initiatives, and it played a crucial role in U.S. counterterrorism efforts. The two countries grew closer. As a sign of that closeness, the United States agreed to sell the UAE the F-35, the most advanced fighter jet in U.S. inventory, only sold to some of America's closest partners. But negotiations over the F-35 deal broke down, and it's unclear whether they'll be resurrected. That's left Abdulhalik Abdullah feeling a little bit abandoned. I think we thought after the Abraham deal and after the F-35 that we are building a long-term relationship. All of a sudden it seemed that this, this long-term relationship is no longer relevant or important to Washington. It doesn't want to go through with the F-35. It's not recognizing the risk that we have taken into the Abraham Accord. So I think they need to level a little bit with where we come from, okay? As the United States tries to shift its attention out of the region, he says that it's the United States that needs to change its approach to the UAE, acknowledging that the UAE has grown to be a key partner. The first one, first item on the agenda should be that the UAE of today is way different, vastly different from the UAE yesterday. You no longer talking to a junior partner here. UAE today is a middle power with a vast network of friends globally, with influence all over, and with investment in America that is more than $300 billion, a third trade partner for America. And we have been really investing in this relationship so much. One country that might want the U.S. to pull out of the Middle East is Iran. For more than four decades, the United States and Iran have been grappling with each other in the Middle East, often through allies and proxies. Nasser Hadian is an Iranian political scientist. He doesn't think the United States is going away anytime soon. We think it's going to reduce its commitment and presence, but certainly it's not going to leave the region the way the others may think that the U.S. may leave. Our strategic value is less than before for the U.S., but still the U.S. cannot dismiss or ignore the region. In fact, the persistent concern that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapons capability is one of the key factors keeping the United States engaged in the region. Alon Pinkas argues that the Iran nuclear deal might be the United States' only real remaining interest in the Middle East. The U.S. is only focused on one thing in the greater region, and that is the Iran or the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. And even that, I tend to think, is not a prime priority or a prime interest for the U.S. They want to get it over with. The United States might want to get it over with, but the negotiations for a new nuclear deal have been tough. Still, Hadian is hopeful that a new JCPOA might offer a path to de-escalation and a wider dialogue between the United States and Iran. Well, certainly there are other issues, you know, which are concerned to both of us. For instance, our presence in the region and uh, your presence in the region. If there is a negotiation to basically routinize or come up with a sort of code of conduct between both of us, that would greatly help. 
so we can begin talking for instance about Iraq what can be done what should be done about Iraq we can talk about Yemen we can talk about our concern which is your military presence in the region incident at sea these are all issues which we can discuss debates and uh, hopefully come up with a sort of an agreement to get there the United States and Iran will need to make a lot of compromises but to Abdullah a deal made with concessions to Iran but without assurances to U.S. partners in the region, doesn't really feel like a solution at all. What is scary is, as America tries to scale down its presence, the one country that is most positioning itself is Iran. So we're going to see even more of an Iran menace in America, an Iran threat, etc., etc. So the question that is really bothering us the most, it is at the time when America is drifting away, not necessarily leaving, but drifting away, we're seeing that Iran is positioning itself to be the stakeholder or the provider of security in the region. And to us, that is the nightmare scenario. In the last five years, U.S. partners in the region have concluded that they can't afford to rely on the United States the way they used to. Now they're taking a more active role, shaping the region toward their own objectives. There's the growing power of countries like the UAE and Turkey. All of these are the new kids on the block, so to speak, and they're wielding considerable leverage across the region. They have interests that are at odds with each other and often at odds with the United States. We're seeing them adopt a far more expansive interpretation of national security. For example, a country like the UAE is carrying a lot more weight. They're intervening militarily, politically and financially across the region and beyond from the Horn of Africa to Yemen, to Libya, to Sudan. And they're trying to shape political outcomes. And this is again happening all under the mantra of stabilization, the sense that everyone is tired and most conflicts are in a stalemate. And as countries in the Middle East take a more active regional role, the conditions they're trying to forge are not those the United States would necessarily endorse. These governments are on the whole more interested in order than liberalization, and they're more focused on outcomes than processes. It's a set of preferences that U.S. commentators once argued laid the groundwork for the 9-11 attacks. But regional governments argue in return that U.S.-led efforts to democratize the Arab world helped prompt the chaos and civil wars of the Arab Spring and its aftermath. To people like former Egyptian Foreign Minister Nabil Fahmi, Western aspirations for the region still resonate with the public, even if they might not seem attainable. If you talk to the average Egyptian, his dreams are more Western than they are Eastern. But does he feel satisfied or able to reach that? No, because you want immediate results that actually happened yesterday rather than today and tomorrow. Some of our problems need a more generation approach. And frankly, people want to see results as well. Fahmi said you can see proof that longer-term U.S. investments paid off in the Egyptian government. At a certain point in time, means that from the American University in Cairo or from American universities in the U.S., 40% of our cabinet at the ministerial level had U.S. degrees. And they therefore sought, not without an Egyptian flavor, but sought with a functional American mindset in terms of business and management. But for some countries, the pro-U.S. orientation they've maintained for decades 
no longer makes sense. Russia and China are looking to raise their profiles in the Middle East, and they see regional government's instincts toward top-down economics and a strictly regulated political order as the right ones. Rather than relitigate old tensions with the U.S. government that seems to be on its way out, why not explore closer ties with governments that seem to be on their way in? I think the question over here asks, are we moving into a multipolar world system? And if it is, then it is legit for everybody over here to see what kind of multipolar positioning that we need to do in the years to come. I would say that also, as we've moved into a Pax Americana world, others have also moved into the gap. We're seeing Russia and China as the most obvious. But to Alon Pinkas, moving away from the United States would be a big mistake. Israel should stick by the U.S. no matter what. If forced to make a choice, you know, maneuver all you want and delay and procrastinate and don't make decisions when you don't really have to. But when you have to make a decision that is either President Biden saying X and President Xi Jinping saying Y, you go with the X. You don't play games. Israel needs to be more understanding of the U.S.'s change of priorities. When the U.S. is asking Israel not to entertain Chinese and not to accept Chinese investments in strategic infrastructure projects, Israel should heed the advice. Not because uh, the Americans are right. The Americans may be very wrong in asking this, but this is the relationship that we have. Abdul Khalik Abdullah disagrees. Let's think 2025, even beyond 2025, 2030. Most likely, you're going to see less of America militarily, politically engaged, white, etc., etc. At the same time, we're probably going to see two things simultaneously. More of China and Asia in general. We're going to see more of it, more of India, more of Korea. We're redesigned the military deal with Korea, $3.7 billion orange deal that America probably didn't provide. So we went to South Korea to do that. For her part, Yahya doesn't think the United States can get off quite so easily. For the U.S. to disengage less, it needs stability here. For stability to take place, there are very specific policies that need to be put in place and the actual manpower and resources needed have to also be invested in order for us to move in that direction. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing that. Given the conditions in the region today, I think it's only a matter of time before things start cracking up again. And the U.S. might find itself reluctantly getting involved again in a region it really wants to get out of. This is what I'm seeing now. That's the kind of tipping point. A generation ago, the United States saw itself as the indispensable nation. In the Middle East and elsewhere around the world, the United States was the principal driver of diplomacy and the principal guarantor of security. Two decades and several wars later, perceptions of the United States and its interests are shifting. Partners and adversaries alike question the U.S. capabilities and U.S. commitment to remake the world in its image. In the Middle East in particular, the United States seems to be on its way out, while powers such as Russia and China are judged to be on their way in. Iran, a long-standing U.S. adversary in the region, sees some potential for an accommodation with the United States, but several of Iran's neighbors see any U.S. accommodation with the Islamic Republic as a harbinger of disaster. What to do 
For some, the logic of standing by the United States continues to make sense. If anything, they see U.S. eagerness to leave the region as an argument for hewing even closer to the United States. But others see a changing order upon us, and they're keen to chart their own paths in a more multipolar world. And there are still voices in the region who think it's all more complicated than that. In their mind, the United States never sought to play a key role in the Middle East, but it was forced to when the region's dysfunction came to threaten U.S. and global interests. Now the fissures that once erupted in cycles of violence and enmity are re-emerging. The United States may be done with the Middle East, but the Middle East may not be done with the United States. Next time in the podcast, we conclude the series thinking about the role the Middle East should play in U.S. global strategy. This is the United States and the Middle East podcast miniseries. I'm your host, John Alterman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to Babbel on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts.